This is the business of sports. The International Olympic Committee is facing a crisis. Which sport would you point to and say, put your money here? Where the money is flowing inside sports around the globe. Has NASCAR's business engine lost some horsepower? Now I'm paying 5 or 10% what I used to pay to buy the whole team. Michael Barr. Nothing like a cheap hot dog, which is what you should get. Scott Soshnank. How do you put your brand outside of the United States? How do you capture fans around the world? Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio. We're pleased to have on the program today with Grossbeck, owner of the Boston Celtics. He bought the team in 2002 and was previously a partner at venture capital firm Highland Capital Partners. Thank you for joining us, Wick. Really glad to be on. Thanks. Let me see if you remember, Wick. Prior to the season, we were at the NBA owners' meetings together in the lobby. I said to you, just casual conversation, how's the team look this year? Do you remember what you said back? No, I don't remember specifically, uh, but I probably said, I think we're good, but maybe not as good as everybody's making us out to be. You actually said, and I loved it, you said, I've learned after all this time, there are only two answers to that question. There's watchable, and there's unwatchable. <laughs> and you said, we're watchable. What does that mean yeah, to I you? My, I guess I had my business hat on then, like, uh, people are going to be interested in the team, watch the team, come to the games. Uh, enjoy the team. But, it, you know, you could also say you're either a contender or not, a true contender, one of the very, very few elite, or or, uh, or not a true, true contender. And uh, it still remains to be seen if we're one of those or not, but we are definitely watchable. But things are certainly trending positively for the Boston Celtics. Absolutely. We're doing, uh, you know, we, we've sort of won over the city. Uh, I mean, they always love us, but they've got four teams up here to love. And Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft and a bunch of Patriots players are coming in. Uh, the Red Sox, the Bruins come in when they can. You know, it's just a big, it's a feeling that we're all in it together up here, and it's us against the world in a sense. I have some heartbreaking memories because I'm a native Detroiter and a big Pistons fan, and I remember those Pistons-Celtics matchup, and there have been many boxes of Kleenex that were used during those times. It's such a rich history with the Celtics. It's amazing. And, you know, the Pistons have a great history, and they've got some banners up there. I've went to both of our road games in Detroit this year um, at the Palace, the last season in the Palace. And uh, I see the banners in your place as well. You've got a great tradition out there. And Tom Gores, the owner, is a good friend of mine. Tom is, of course, from Platinum Equity. You have a venture capital background. Does that affect ownership groups? We hear sort of the new breed of owner. We keep hearing that new breed, private equity. Does it affect the ownership group and the way they go about the business? Well, when I put this group together 15 years ago, seems like yesterday, but it was 15 years, I think we were one of the first to have a bunch of guys come in. Um, and uh, we really needed to because the, the price, even back then, was already a big price. And I certainly didn't have that money. I needed to find some great partners, and we found the partnership. Uh, we, we formed it out of uh, really a bunch of guys in private equity and venture capital coming together and saying, let's invest. But the difference is, uh, certainly in our case, that we weren't investing for a financial return. We were really investing for the emotional return of being involved in a Boston team that, that we thought we might be able to take to a championship someday. Um, so it's really more of an emotional reward or investing as a fan, putting some spare money into, you know, probably a decent investment or a reasonably safe place, but 
but uh, really, we never talked about the finances. We only talked about could we win the championship, and and that's been the hallmark of this ownership group ever since. Now, lots of owners say that it's about the emotional investment, but to understand where you come from, you have to go back to when you were a fan. Your father, Irv Grossbeck, was founded Continental Cable. You and he went to games, correct? Oh, absolutely. We went to all four sports, though. It wasn't just exclusively the Celtics. And then for many years, he thought about trying to own a Major League Baseball team, starting with the Red Sox, and uh, looked at the Giants and the A's along the way, and then looked at the Red Sox again. So he, he really gave me the original idea of buying control of a team and came in as a managing partner of the Celtics in 2002. I'm very glad to say it's been a real pleasure working directly with my dad for 15 years. The arena, TD Garden, it is now an experience to watch a game, and I've always said this, that sports has changed from the fan being at the game from just getting a hot dog and peanuts to now. You experience so much from from shows during halftime to the big elaborate scoreboards. Yeah, it really is. We want you, win or lose, we want the fan to feel like they got uh, entertained. And we actually have a family crowd. We really have a bunch of kids in the stands, a bunch of younger people uh, coming in. We really skew young just generally in the NBA, and I, and I think our, our crowd at the Celtics is the youngest crowd among the four sports in Boston. Um, and so, but, but young or old, we're looking to be entertained these days. Um, I'm in my 50s, and I, I, like the, I like the music. I like the, you know, just everything that's going on. I like seeing the fans up on the Jumbotron when they're shown in their seats uh, having fun. It's just kind of infectious. We are chatting with Wick Grossbeck, owner of the Boston Celtics, and you know what's infectious, Wick? That, that's dancing Gino when he comes on the scoreboard. That, <laughs> that's when everybody gets up at that place. Right, yeah. We, we like having Gino. That's if we're really winning in a blowout. Oh, and by the way, I always like to use co-owner and emphasize my partners. But, um, but anyway, back, back on, on track here. Yeah, it's, uh, if Gino shows up, you know things are going well. You mentioned Detroit earlier, Wick, and they're moving downtown, sharing an arena with the hockey club. It's about a sports and entertainment development and district. We're hearing that a lot these days. It's like a tentpole, whether it's a media play or a real estate play. But the Celtics are the Celtics. Can we anticipate moving forward that the Celtics may be the cornerstone of something bigger, some, whether it's a real estate development or anchor programming for something else? Is there more to what you hope to accomplish with this team? Well, I'm looking out my office window right now at the TD Garden, which is about 100 yards away, and there's building going on all around it, led by the uh, obviously led by the owners of the Garden and uh, and the Boston Bruins, the Delaware North Corporation, my partners, uh, in in very many aspects, including the lease. We're tenants in the building, but they are building all around, including entertainment um, and residential and office, and their their best. Uh, position to comment on the development. It's a massive development, and we're uh, enjoying being in the arena, which is also being renovated and as part of the whole plan. Would it be a better position for you to be an owner of an arena rather than a tenant? I know they have like the yellow seats for the Bruins. You'd think maybe the Celtics would have green seats. Or maybe we'll just have yellow uniforms. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> break some news. Oh, uh, Red, um, Red Auerbach is rolling over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we, we have a great relationship with them, and it's built over the time, over the 15 years, and, uh, and been through several lease renewals and extensions and, and really forming uh, closer and closer bonds. And we're really uh, pleased with the, able, uh, the way we've been able to put a competitive team uh, on the court most years and 
have the whole process work, and part of the process is the lease we have at the garden. So we're very happy with where we stand. One of the biggest expenses when it comes to owning and operating a team in the NBA, players' salaries. Wick, how do you keep costs down when teams are paying close to $100 million in team salary? Yeah, uh, I try not to look at those things. <laughs> they don't even look like salaries anymore. They, anymore. they look like sort of, uh, I don't know, like the national debt, you know, billboard uh, on, on the, you know, in New York. But basically, um, we have a partnership with the players. We split the revenues roughly 50-50 with the players, and it's a, uh, a system that's been in place for a while and it seems to be working for, for both sides, both partners. Um, but it's amazing. But I guess the more we're paying the guys, uh, the more obviously that they are bringing in to the whole business because we're splitting it with them. So, you know, we get to keep the same amount on our side, although we have to pay expenses out of it. Anyway, it just seems to be working. The NBA is really in kind of a golden period right now. Uh, some great players on the court, great fan interest. Um, really, it's become a global sport rivaling only soccer, um, in terms of international and, uh, franchise appreciation and everything else it's just been a, it's a great time to be in the nba and um we don't begrudge anybody any any piece of it speaking of sharing revenue boston is a fierce sports town there are many fans that are devoted to their teams which means that if they can't get to the game they'll either catch it on tv or on radio and those contracts the tv and radio contracts are huge which has to be a major plus for any sports organization in boston yeah, they've really changed since the time I've been in. Uh, our local partnership with Comcast, uh, Comcast Sportsnet, the channel we have here in New England, um, has been successful and, and is, is well-regarded and, and popular. And then on the national side, we just redid at the league level uh, the national agreements uh, two years ago, and they're kicking in this year. Things are really good. We're, we're grateful to the media partners and we're especially grateful to the fans who are watching if they can't come to the games at all um you know it's a it's a good time but we we've got to give them a team uh, back to the original question are that is the team watchable you know we're we really want celtic pride to be embodied on the court we want people to really appreciate our guys and the way they play and we're doing our best uh or we're, we're trying hard and, and hopefully doing our best towards that Wick, I'm going to ask you to read some tea leaves. You just said things are really good. They are because you just locked in that long-term TV deal. Perhaps Bob Iger and John Skipper over at ESPN and Disney are not saying things are so great. Can you read some tea leaves as to what the future of these media deals might look like and who might be involved? Well, I can't really read any tea leaves, I guess, and we're just in the early stages of, of both deals, the local and the national. But I guess I'd say it's it's clear that new um, pipes, if you will, new ways for people to watch, um, Facebook, uh, Google, uh, Amazon, and so on. Um, you know, people are, are thinking about coming in, but, but they, you know, and they might try to get live major sports and some, uh, you know, uh, certainly the NFL has made a couple of deals recently with people streaming games and so forth. And, and we have an NBA league pass that streams digitally all over the world, and it's very profitable. So I actually have an investment fund with two partners, Causeway Media Partners, and we invest in uh, sort of the future uh, trends or emerging trends in uh, fans watching sports on mobile devices and technology enabling sports teams to do various things, including put their games out there. So that's I, I'm investing with my uh, in my spare time, in a sense, or half time, um, in sort of these new media trends. 
But when it comes to the four major sports in the United States, it's not clear to me uh, what will happen in 5, 10, 15 years. And I probably shouldn't even speculate since I'm under agreement with some great partners right now, you know, in sort of the traditional model. I'm going to ask a little bit more of a generic question here. I made the mistake about a couple of years ago. I visited the Boston Cape Cod area, which is a beautiful area. That's never a mistake. No, no, that's not the mistake. The mistake was I wore a Lions jersey, and a guy looked at me and he said, do you know where you are? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. it. The thing about Boston, the fans are very devoted. You don't hear that pretty much in any other town. You'll hear people complain about the team. It's like, oh, Oh, this team is this, and all oh, our team is that. But in the Boston area, you don't see that at all. I hope, though, it's it's kind of done uh, lightly most of the time. You know, people aren't you know sort of being tough about it. They're just sort of being proud about it, being proud about the Patriots, for example. I, I guess if you added up, there've been a, I think it's eleven championships won in Boston since two thousand two, something like that. I mean, that's just outrageous. And I grew up here in Boston. And we had the Celtics winning some. We had the Bruins in the early 70s. Uh, of course, we didn't have the Red Sox, didn't have the Patriots uh, winning. And uh, it was kind of a, a little bit of a uh, more desolate, a little bit more of a wasteland. Um, after Larry Bird uh, retired, certainly the 90s were a rough rough period. And so to have 11 championships since '02, if I'm right on the number, is, I mean, not even to be able to know the number is ridiculous. So Boston is, we're, we're all pretty proud of these teams. We're lucky to be part of it. We're, we're glad to get our one. We'd love to get another one someday and, um, and keep adding to the total. We are chatting with Wick Grosbeck, owner of the Boston Celtics, and you can see Michael Barwick. But the problem wasn't that he was wearing a Lions jersey. It's that he was wearing a Smedium. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the problem. <laughs> Little kids started running away right after that. <laughs> Wick, let's talk about the NBA as a global sport. I know LeBron can sell globally. I know Steph Curry can sell globally. Is it more difficult to sell the Celtics internationally because you don't have a real breakout star? You have a great team and a marquee brand, though. The brand was built overseas for years and years and years by Red Auerbach, and he and he and when he was here, he was here four years with us. Uh, in the early parts of the ownership, uh, we brought him back to be team president, which he should always have been. And uh, I had the honor of working with Red for four years. Um, but I heard all the stories about going to Moscow, going to Spain. The dream team was in Spain with Larry Bird. And when we take the Celtics overseas, people go absolutely crazy, uh, like no other NBA franchise. And it, it, it builds off the past. It builds off Red and Larry and the, the and Bill Russell in the past of the Celtics. And so um, we were in uh, Spain and Italy uh, a couple years ago, and the people turned out um, in, you know, Thousands and thousands and thousands of people turned out. We're going back overseas next year. I can't disclose quite yet what we're doing, but we go back every couple of years, one place or another, and the reception is unbelievable for the Celtics. So um, it's it's NBA's individual stars, but it's also team legacies. Wick, I want to pivot to sort of the intellectual capital of Boston. We hear about uh, analytics these days. You hired a coach in Brad Stevens. He was the first to utilize analytics in such a heavyweight in college, had a specific person on his staff devoted to analytics. I hear that the teams in Boston actually have a cooperative spirit. The Patriots will share with the Celtics, will share with the Bruins best practices. Of course, all the intellectual capital, the universities in the area, that that's a contributing factor to why Boston teams win. What can you tell me about that? 
Well, I guess I, I think that's true. I don't know the details of, of what the other teams are doing. I can tell you generally what we do with the Bruins, and I've talked about our working together over at the Garden just in many different ways. Uh, but the Red Sox and the Patriots back in the day were sharing season ticket lists with things uh, with us and doing promotions, co-promotions with us to try to help us when we were in a downtime right when we took the team over and had 11,000 people sitting in an 18,624-seat you know, stadium right when we bought the team. Um, so tried to help us get going. The, the camaraderie among the ownership and front office staffs among the, the teams is, is real. And it's un, unprecedented. I've really not seen it in other cities in, in the States. But um, So we do work together. In terms of data and analytics, to really tell you for sure I know what we're learning from the Patriots or the Red Sox about analytics, um, I'd probably be the wrong person to have to ask our assistant GM, Mike Zarin. Oh, I've spoken with, with Mike many times on the subject, including up at the Sloan Analytics Conference in Boston that is co-founded by a member of the Patriots team and a member of the Houston Rockets team, Daryl Morey. Are you more opt to buy into analytics because of your background in finance, that you don't have to be sold on it by a coach? Yeah, well, I actually hired Daryl into the league um, out of Parthenon Consulting in 2002 when he originally helped just as a diligence analyst uh, on our acquisition of the Celtics. So I brought him in uh, to the NBA. It's my fault, in a sense. But Daryl's a great guy, and, um, and now, as you say, uh, is the GM of the Rockets. Uh, I'm, I'm sold on doing things right or doing things as, as, you know, better than everybody else if we possibly can, but not being stuck in the past and analytics in basketball. Uh, you know, it's in growing importance, and, and we're totally embracing it. Fantasy sports, that has always been a big proponent of many sports, from the NFL to Major League Baseball to NBA. Many people play fantasy sports, and people know the players in an intricate way because of fantasy sports. But I'm wondering if it's a double-edged sword uh, in your mind. Uh, no, we like fan engagement. We like we like fantasy sports. We're happy to have fans um, engage with us and pay attention to what we do. You know, there are a lot of games in the season. There are 82 regular season games, and some of those games in you know December, January, February. You know, you're sort of far away from the playoffs. Um, you know, we we want people to stay engaged and and have the games remain relevant to them. And maybe fantasy has you know something to do with keeping people of a certain age, at least the younger people. Uh, Kind of fired up about the games and the team and the players, uh, but I don't I don't see any downsides uh, myself to fantasy sports. I really don't um, have a, any comment on sort of the legality of it in different states. It seems to be trending more positively, but um, I'm not heavily involved in it. And other people are probably better to comment on that than I am. But I, I have a generally benevolent view of fantasy sports and even of gambling. I think following our commissioner Adam Silver's lead, um, you know, I think eventually regulated you know, in a sense, safe and clean, uh, you know, gaming with respect to sports teams is probably a good way for state and local governments to raise revenue. Um, and it's probably going to be okay with us if we, if we can get it right. I think we think we can get it right someday. It'll also drive fan engagement. It's just one of those things that exactly. will drive engagement as well. Right. You touched on Causeway Media. I'd like to just look back at it because it sort of ties into this, how do you reach fans around the world? For folks who don't know, you're also involved in Formula E which is sort of electric Formula One racing, flow sports you can get. If you're a track and field aficionado, you can get almost any race, any meet anywhere in the world. Is this where we're headed, sort of no more broadcasting, but narrow casting, where I can get what I want through this? We think at least for, let's take the example of Formula E and flow. 
you know, they're definitely not the mainstream sports. Uh, you know, racing is a mainstream sport, but Formula E is much smaller than our competitor, Formula One, but growing, you know, really nicely and doing very, very well. The next race is this weekend in Monaco, uh, and then the week after that in Paris, downtown Paris. To be able to race 150-mile-an-hour cars, you know, badged, you know, and the teams include Jaguar and BMW and Audi, you know, some amazing racing names. Um, around the streets of downtown Paris, uh, which you couldn't do with combustion cars, uh, is really tr- truly extraordinary. It's pretty cool business. But Flow is broadcasting actually 22 different sports. We have 22 different sports verticals. It's growing unbelievably fast. So it's totally a streaming network uh, and collection of um, not niche sports, but you know, I mean niche perhaps. But another way would be uh, uh, you know specialty sports, and people are paying. Uh, monthly and yearly subscriptions to subscribe to Flow to watch their favorite sports. It's a great business model, great management team. We're really excited about those two investments. I want to get more into Formula E because anybody who has not seen this sport, it is it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I'm a big racing fan. And you're watching pure electric cars with a lot of torque going on different tracks around the world. The cars are so quiet, you just basically hear the squeal of the tires, not like you do with uh, the regular combustion engines. And and I just want to expand more on that. Like you said, this is going to catch on, and we're going to see telecast of this more than just like at midnight or 1 a.m. This is going to be really in the prime time one day. Well, I hope you're right, and I appreciate I, I appreciate you uh, following it. You know, we we started this season in downtown Hong Kong, right on the water, which was spectacular. As I say, we're going through Monaco and Paris, uh, Berlin after that, doubleheader in Montreal, which is cool, and then a doubleheader in Brooklyn. So the, on the waterfront, Brooklyn Navy Yard, uh, right there with the Manhattan skyline in the background. So actually. Uh, Formula One style racing, um, you know, in the streets of New York City, which hasn't happened ever. Um, and we're pretty excited about that. That's mid-July. So the sport is uh, taking off a bit. We're still working hard on it. Um, we're not going to declare victory, just like I'm not declaring victory for the Celtics, but we really love the way Formula E is going. And what's cool about it in a pit stop is that unlike combustion cars where you're putting in the fuel and changing the tires, you just change the whole car. You just get the driver gets up from one car to another car and then you're off that's yeah. fully charged yeah that's right and and and, uh, and as you know in formula one they don't even fuel anymore they feel like it's dangerous so they just give them fuel for at the beginning so that's sort of gone but in either sport but yeah in two seasons our new batteries come in and we'll use the same car for the whole race it's we're actually driving electric vehicle technology and trying to actually help the environment while we're um you know trying to uh, amaze people with some great racing. So it, it, we are, in fact, developing the world's best batteries, and we'll be able to run the full hour at 150 or so miles an hour uh, on the same car, which is going to be absolutely amazing. Well, if you can put one in my iPhone, I would appreciate it. But you, you, <laughs> you, you gave me a perfect segue before, Wick, when you talked about going in Brooklyn and the Navy Yards. That happens to be where the practice facility for the Brooklyn Nets is. You swung a deal with the Nets. Now you here are a playoff team, and playoff teams are not supposed to have the best chance at winning the lottery, at getting the best player in college basketball, but that's where you sit. Can you remember when you swung this deal for Garnett and Pierce and all these, I, I don't know, I think you got like 400 draft picks from the Brooklyn Nets. What, do you remember how excited you were to complete that deal? Because it really is setting you up for the future. 
Well, I'd like, I have to be honest. I remember every word of it, um, and it was, uh, you know, three and a half years ago, uh, or four years ago, whatever it was, a, a bunch of years ago. But I remember, I remember the deal clearly. But let's be honest, the Nets uh, felt like they had a very good chance of putting together a great team and being very, very competitive. And they did put together a great team, and it was competitive. It just didn't get all the way. Um, but they and and we we all figured, including on our side, that their the draft picks they were giving us might not be worth all that much in the scheme of things. They might be towards the end of the first round because the Nets had a chance to be a really good team for a while, a good long while. And so we never felt that this was a um, you know lopsided deal. In fact, we felt like they uh, worked hard to get a fair price, and and so did we. So. I, I just don't think it's it's right to look back at it um, in any other way to, than to say uh, sometimes things work out, you know, one way or another, but you can't always predict it back at the time. Well, certainly worked out for you this time. Wick Grosbeck, owner of the Boston Celtics, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, guys. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we talk tech, real estate, and hoops with L.A. Clippers owner Steve Ballmer.